The Afterwards podcast is taking a holiday break, so we are showcasing another book TV program. The New York Times listed author Linda Villarosa's Under the Skin as one of the 10 best books of 2022. In this podcast, we hear more from her on the book, the research, and racial disparities in healthcare. Afterwards, we'll return with new episodes on Saturday, January 7th. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I am happy to be here and happy to celebrate your book. Thank you. I, I'm so happy to be in, in conversation with you. So my first question just got taken, but I have another question for you. And that is, you have this career. You've been writing about these issues in healthcare, in the environment, and just how the lived conditions of, of Black folks, of Black of, of people who are on the margins. And, but this book is not just about the information that you compiled. It's about how your perspective changed. Can you tell us about how it changed and why? I think I am from this family of, you know, strivers and believing in uplift. And my grandparents came from Mississippi to Chicago during the Great Migration. And then my parents said, I don't want to be in Chicago anymore. I want to take my the, my sister and me, the girls, to uh, the suburbs where they can we can have a better life. And I know that we can do this and we can work hard. We can get our education. And we were that kind of family. And that was how I was raised. Um, it's like each one teach one, lift as you climb. And, you know, sort of, I guess, bootstrappers, kind of black bootstrappers, um, Booker T. Washingtonians. And then when I got to Essence Magazine in the late 80s, I fit right in because that's how that was the thinking there. It was a little bit more political than that, but it really was about we have this audience of black women. We have a very deep reach of black women in the United States. And now we have a chance to really change the, you know, change, just make the race better, uplift, uplift the race. And for me, it was about health. I knew about racial health disparities. It's not a secret. It's, you know, racial health disparities have been have existed since we've been on these shores in you know in america and i thought if people know better they'll do better but it took me a minute to realize people even when people do better and do everything right and do their best then there still is there these health disparities and poor health outcomes still exist and it happened in my family of strivers and it happened in some ways to me with my own birth 
and I see it in my friends, and I really see it now that I've sort of opened the lid on it and started talking about it. Now I hear every kind of story. And this lived experience um, storytelling is, you know, really important to couple with the kind of evidence-based research reporting that I also do and love. Going back to my own days in public health, I always struggle with this term, health disparities, because I feel like it kind of just sanitizes or packages what is a stunning difference in ways of life and material conditions for people. You're talking about on both ends, both at at birth and in early death, a significant difference in how people live and die. Can you tell us more about what is actually, what are the things that are going into this thing we call uh, health disparities and uh, these gaps that kind of get sanitized in the language? Ooh, I'm really glad you asked that because I just kind of push over that, go right through it. And um, I thank you for allowing me to slow down a little bit and to think about that. And I think the big idea of the book is that America has um, arguably the best health care in the world, definitely the most expensive. And um, we spend so much money on health care more than every other country. We also have um, high, you know, ours is good. We have good um, clinical health care. We have good innovations. We have good technology. Yet we have poor health outcomes in relation to other wealthy countries in the world. And it starts at infant mortality and maternal mortality. And then it ends with life expectancy. Where, why? And But it's always treated as a mystery. What's going on in the United States where, you know, when you look at the inequality of our healthcare system and then you drill down into race, um, it starts at birth for race, um, racial health disparities, and ends with death, looking at life expectancy. So a black, you know, black babies are, you know, it's we're one, in, I think it's a, uh, about nearly twice as, uh, have the twice, almost two times the level of infant mortality, where they, uh, you know, black women are three to four times more likely to pass away during pregnancy and childbirth. And then, you know, we're also have, have, a lot of more near misses. And then at the end of life, life expectancy is different for black people. And it used to be when I first started writing this book, the life expectancy gap was 3.5 years. So black folks live 3.5 years less. But after COVID, by the time I was finishing the book, it had stretched to six years. And then I think the stat around life expectancy that really hit me was looking at where my mother's from. So my mother's from the Inglewood section of Chicago. People live to age 60. And then nine miles north in Streeterville, people live to age 90. And it's the largest, and Inglewood is a black community. That's where it was used to be a promised land for people coming up south. And then, um, so why would there be a, you know, why would people only be living to age 60? And why would there be a 30-year gap you know, with only a nine mile distance and, you know, a black community versus a white community. And you're sort of like, you know, wow. (laughs) I just have to say, wow. So you talk about three theories in the book, well, four theories, but three that you don't quite agree with uh, that purport to explain these differences. One is, you know, black people are somehow biologically, genetically different or even inferior, and they are succumb to illness more easily. The other is 
uh, black people are just more poor, right? They're just more likely to be poor and they don't have access to the same resources, healthcare, et cetera. And uh, the other is they, black people, somehow are behaviorally deficient or uneducated. Tell me about the fourth option. The fourth option is really that something is wrong with our communities. I think that's my, is that my fourth option? Okay, is that yes. something is wrong with our communities? And that's what I was thinking about Chicago. So, and I remember, you know, I'm not gonna say the name of the former president, but that person was looking at Chicago and, you know, calling it out and saying it's so terrible, it's such a crime ridden, look at how, how, how can people live like this? When my mother and I went back there, we were shocked by the condition of her community. We went back in 20, early 2020, just before the pandemic. But then looking into it, it's like, oh, this is a community that was redlined. So people weren't, you know, black people in this black community weren't allowed to buy homes. Your home is your biggest wealth asset. Um, and, you know, that's how people pass along generational wealth is through a home. And so if you weren't allowed to own a home, and then it was funny because I was doing these interviews and I was all over redlining. And I finished an interview with um, Dr. Helene Gale, who is gonna be the next um, president of Spelman there in Atlanta. And she had her assistant call me back and she said, tell Linda not to forget about contract buying. And I was like, oh, what's contract buying? I, did, I hadn't heard of that. And so she gave me a link, I read about it and it was the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the rule that Black folks couldn't buy a home except on a contract. So that meant we had no equity. And then if you didn't, if you missed a payment on your home because you didn't have a mortgage or you didn't have that kind of equity that other people had, um, then you could lose your home. And then I asked my mother, I said, how did grandfather, you know, own that building he bought in the 40s? She said, I don't know. He bought it on some kind of contract. He was always terrified that he would lose it. And I thought, oh, my God. Then my mother went to school with Lorraine Hansberry. Lorraine Hansberry's father sued, the, you know, he was a lawyer and he sued around this whole contract buying thing. And I thought, my God, you know, here are these people who come to this place trying to have a better life. And then this happens. And these are clearly, you know, a talented, wonderful, sparkling group of people, including my mom and Lorraine Hansberry. And why did the, this is what happened to this community? It's not fair. We've talked about this before, you know, about the nexus of issues of environment and of health. And from my perspective, you know, you know everything. But I want to know if there's anything you encountered while reporting and researching for this book that surprised you. I think it wasn't really a surprise, but it had it. I had to force myself to have a little bit more of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always very, you know, my sort of um, backstory is, and my, what I'm doing on the down low in my reporting is to say, this is not just poverty, okay? That I'm very quick to say that this is not just poverty. Middle-class black people also have a hard time in, you know, America and it affects our health. I think that what I needed to get a, ba a better understanding was, is the so-called social determinants of health to say, and, and to get a, you know, sort of think more about health and wealth and the intersection. 
And when I was writing the story about my mother's neighborhood in Chicago, I interviewed a friend of mine, Dr. Eric Whitaker, who was in grad school with me. And he's a physician. He's um, President Obama's really good friend. And I was interviewing him. And I remember he started this clinic in my mom's neighborhood, for mostly for black men. It was a black man's clinic. And then I remember he stopped doing it. And I said, what happened? And he said, and it, because it seemed like such a success story, they were getting men into this clinic and to, and he said, it does, it's something is going on in this community that having a clinic doesn't help. It's not enough. And he started do, talking about, you know, talking to people in Chicago about investing and in sort of wealth building in Chicago, rather than being so focused on just getting healthcare to people because that wasn't enough. And because, you know, if the whole community around people is crumbling, then having one little healthcare center isn't gonna, you know, really do enough. And I remember thinking, ah, that's a shift for me. It's a shift for me to think about this and to think more um, intentionally about the combination, you know, the intersection of health and wealth. Now, I wanna make sure that to remind everybody to pop any questions you have in the chat so we can answer some of them a little bit later. Uh, the next question, you talked about, and I think you write quite beautifully about what this pandemic exposes or uh, even, you know, I think reiterates from your uh, writing. Were you at all surprised again about how disparate the impact, the racial impact of COVID-19 was? Man, people like us were not surprised by that. <laughs> and so <laughs> we've been looking at- I should so say is, not not the impact, not was, is. We are still yeah. in a pandemic. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think when it was first happening and we were, you know, people who had studied the kind of health inequality and racial health disparities and also HIV AIDS, you know, that was really how I started getting into public health. And I was on in early 2020, you know, right around the shutdown, you know, right when the pandemic was happening, I was on Zoom calls and Facebook Live and, you know, people were like, what's Zoom? And we were doing these calls and we were, it was black folks who had been involved with HIV AIDS and everyone was saying, this is gonna strike black people hard. And that there was this conversation and there, was, there weren't statistics yet. There were local statistics. There were some in Louisiana, there were in some in, you know, in different states, some in New York, but there was nothing national. And so locally you could see racial health disparities with COVID outcomes, but there wasn't any, no, no national data. But so on this little, you know, these panicky, kind of angry um, discussions of mostly black people and other people of color who were involved in HIV AIDS were saying, this is going to blow up. And then I remember the second part of the conversation was, should we push the idea or is it going to backfire and they're going to blame us for this? They're going to blame us when it happens more to us. And um, so there was all this conversation. And then the one that hit me was, I don't know if they knew I was there or maybe I was going in and out. And somebody said, the mainstream media is never gonna cover this. They don't care about this. And I started thinking, oh dear, <laughs> I'm kind of the mainstream media. I work at the New York Times Magazine. So I told my editor, Jessica Lustig at the magazine, I said, you know, this conversation is going on. I think you should get someone to write about the racial health disparities that are gonna happen when COVID happens, there's going to be, it's going to be 
impact black people and other people of color worse. And I gave her a list of people to write. I was like, I'm writing a book, so I cannot do it. I have no time. So then she's like, well, you should maybe think about doing. I'm like, no, I really, no. I cannot get pulled into one of those long stories. She said, why don't you just do a little pitch and explain your, you know, what you're thinking? So I do the little pitch with other names attached, okay? <laughs> and then probably your name was attached. And so then I'm like, uh, she's like, oh, can you just tell me where you think it would, if you were going to do it, where would it be based? So I called around to my friends and I call people in Atlanta. I call people in Birmingham, in New York, in New Orleans. And it turned out that New Orleans really was the place to write about this. So by the end, I ended up being the one to write about this. And partially because I had so many contacts. I already had the people in place to talk to. And I already had the basic theories. One, because I'm writing a book, was writing a book about racial health disparities, but also because I had that experience with HIV AIDS. Yeah. You call this a moment of epiphany in the book. And um, New Orleans, I remember it's hard to fathom just how much history gets lost when this happens too, when you lose elders early. Ronald, Ronald Lewis, who was the curator of the House of Dancing Feathers in New Orleans, he was one of the first people to pass away from it in the city. Um, and that's black history, right? It's not just, we're not just talking about individual lives, we're talking about pillars of community. And that's when I, you know, how I, I covered it through the lens of the um, Zulu Social Club and you know, that is such a pillar of the community. And to watch the, you know, the people, it was on, you know, I was looking on their Facebook page and it'd be like, another brother got his wings. And there'd be that little emoji and the angel and the and sometimes the praying hands pray for the brother. And that is what moved me to really say, wait, this is these are the folks I really do want to look at what's happening to them because it's so sad. These are guys who were, you know, they were trying to do something good for the community and have Mardi Gras and, you know, the parade and the and the uh, events. And then they got COVID. And so I really wanted to cover. And also, you know, what we saw in COVID eventually was that it struck Black people younger. So we got worse outcomes younger. And the man, Mr. Charles, who I wrote about, um, was only 50 when he passed away. And I was so surprised, you know, because he was so young, but then not surprised. I have a couple more questions for you. And I just want to make sure we we will get to the audience uh, Q&A. So make sure you get your questions in the chat. There's one concept in here that I think is, well, obviously, lots of concepts I think are, are really interesting. But this one jumped out at me is this idea uh, how you explain this persistent these persistent disparities even among people who are who have access to health resources you use this concept of weathering can you tell me more about weathering so weathering is a concept that was um thought up by dr arlene geronimus who is at the university of michigan and she's been thinking about this since she was basically an undergrad. And she's now, well, you know, I don't want to tell her age, but she's probably like 70. And she's been thinking about this and researching it and looking at it and arguing about it. So it's the idea that, um, and it's um, 
what, what she's looked very closely at black women, mostly around infant mortality. And it's the idea that something about the lived experience of being black in America, especially a black woman, causes a kind of premature aging. And her thinking is that every time something happens to you in the form of discrimination, bias, racism, you your body kicks into a kind of the kind of fight or flight syndrome. So your heart starts racing, your blood pressure goes up, your cortisol levels rise. And this makes sense because fight or flight is important and it's um, it's about survival. But if it happens over and over and over again, because you're trying so hard just to survive, it creates um, what she calls weathering. And that is an, a premature aging that played out in COVID because you saw people getting, black people getting COVID at younger ages than white folks. And, um, but weathering is a dual concept. So it both means the way, you know, the, the lived experience of being black in America um, affects our bodies the way a storm, um, you know, the weather hurts a house. So a storm is, a uh, house is weathered by a storm the shingles get knocked off, the, you know, paint chips, the windows break, but then we also weather the storm. And that means we have, we take care of each other. We take care of ourselves through kinship, through community, through um, love. And I really like that concept. And I, I think it's, it's, um, I think it's brilliant that she gave it that poetic name, but it really is a very, you know, evidence-based um, data-driven uh, concept that she was, uh, she was attacked for early in her career because what she was saying, it's, it's not teenagers, teen, teenagers who get pregnant, who are driving up rates of infant mortality, preterm birth and low birth weight. It's actually slightly older women who black women who have been, uh, you know, have had to endure the kind of discrimination that happens in America. And so then people started saying around, you know, in the nineties that she was um, sort of, supporting teen pregnancy and that she was not, you know, being a good advocate. And she was attacked. She had to, people called her house, you know, threatened her job. And now because we've proven, you know, she's really proven, worked hard to prove this theory. And also, you know, it's clear that it's coming, you know, during COVID and also maternal mortality um, rates that this makes sense. She's doing, I saw her recently, you know, a year ago or something, and she's doing well. She has a book deal. She's writing a book about this concept. I'm really proud of her for sticking with it. Well, if you all haven't read, obviously you should read the book, but there's a, an amazing excerpt and uh, I think uh, pulled from reporting from the book on the Ralph sisters uh, that you have in the New York Times Magazine. Um, it's such a touching story. I kind of just want to know what it was like to go and talk to them about their story. And for you as somebody who has seen so, you know, who knows all the sides of this and has seen a lot of it, how does it affect you to bring those stories into your brain and, and into your being and writing? Um, the Ralph sisters just melt my heart. <laughs> I, I, um, so they in they were um, the Ralph family came to uh, Montgomery, Alabama, from ironically uh, Macon County, where Tuskegee happened. They came, the family came there in like the late '60s, like 
early 70s, late 60s. And um, the father was disabled. Neither of the parents could read. There were six children, read or write. And so they were living in Montgomery in like an, a field sort of like squatting. And a social worker, Miss Bly, um, was assigned to their case. And somebody said, we can't have folks living like this. And remember, the Great Society had just, programs had just happened. So there were all kinds of services for people, housing, money, um, health care, and school. So the children hadn't been in school. So the six kids and the parents moved to public housing. They got, uh, Ms. Bly got the children in school. The um, One of them was, Mary Alice was disabled. So she went to a, a school, you know, for the disabled. And, um, but they also got on the radar of the public health service. And at the time, because all these black folks, it was the tail end of the great migration. Those were the ones that didn't quite make it to Chicago or didn't make it to the North. They came, they flooded into cities in the South. And at the, so at the same time, the sinister thing that happened was the government was saying, oh, this is getting too expensive for us. We need to control the population. So it started for the Ralph girls. They're only 12, they were um, 12, 14, and uh, 17. It started with Depo-Provera, which was not, you know, it was still in clinical trials. And so they were given that. And then the, the, the public health service workers went to the mother and said, oh, we want to, what she understood was give your girls immunization. She signed an X on the paperwork, but what it was was to get them sterilized because the public health workers were worried that they said it to Miss Bly that boys were hanging around. But the girls, the youngest ones were 12 and 14. So a nurse came or a public health worker came and picked up the two younger girls and sterilized them. They went back for the older one, but she locked herself in her bedroom. She went and told Miss Bly what happened. And Miss Bly went to the hospital. This is 1973 and said, oh my God, the girls are here, they're in their gowns, they're crying, they're screaming, we heard, help us. And so she had the wherewithal to get to the Southern Poverty Law Center in Montgomery, which was new. Julian Bond was the president of it, but it was pretty new. They took the case, they got it all, they took the Ralphs to Washington to testify, the, the three girls and the parents, they were testified in front of the Senate they won the lawsuit. They got, um, and, but it also uncovered that 100,000 to 150,000 other women, poor and black women, had also been sterilized. But what happened to the Ralphs is they kind of fell off the radar. You see their stories about them. You see them, you know, in museums online. There's their old pictures from 1973 are up. There's a picture from Ebony that I cut out and put in my wallet because I became obsessed with finding them. I had was in Montgomery trying everything I could to find them. I had a researcher on the ground who was a who was a lawyer, and so we're I'm like we have to find them. I know we're going to find them. We're asking. No one knows how to find them. So the researcher woman, her side hustle was teaching parenting classes. So she said, "Will you please come to my parenting?" I was like, "No, I have nothing to say to a parenting class. My kids are grown. I don't have any. Please, just please." Uh, where's my mom and I are doing this thing. We just need some fresh blood. So finally, after three no's, I went to the parenting class. I'm talking and I see the name tag of one of the people is Ralph, Debbie Ralph. After all this time, I'm looking for them, obsessed, the little piece of paper in my wallet. And so I say, are you any relation to Mary, Alice, Katie, and Minnie Lee Ralph? They would be in their 60s. 
She goes, oh yeah, they're my aunts. You want their number? <laughs> so, wow. I, I was so overwhelmed. I didn't see them that time, but I had her call and tell them about me. So the next time when I went there, I met them. It was so, I was, I'm sure they thought I was so deranged because I was so happy and I was so enthusiastic and they are, you know, I'm going to see them next week. I'm going to Montgomery. I think of them as my friends. We talk on the phone. They tell me about the weather there. Um, it's, it, they wear Brooklyn t-shirts that I brought them. And I just feel like it's, there's such an injustice that happened to them, but they're so kind and humble and forgiving. I just would love to see some kind of justice for them, mm. at least an apology, if not a, a kind of reparation, some kind of reparations. Hmm. Now, I do want to make sure we have time for the audience questions. And we have one. Yay. And I think it's a good way to follow up from. Please give me more, folks. Um, we have one here. And I want to make sure. I think it's a good way um, to sort of follow up on what you just said. Have there been any initiatives? to address and eliminate these disparities, and especially in the realm of, you said, looking for some sort of reparation or some sort of acknowledgement for, uh, you know, I think very heinous uh, programs like Tuskegee, like this mass sterilization program, but also I think the more mundane health disparities. Well, one thing is for just, I'll just isolate um, the sterilization. Three states offer a, a form of reparations. Um, North Carolina, where Van went to college. Um, I was just That's where I'm from. That's where, where you're from. from. You're right. Yeah. So North Carolina yeah. did the right thing and gave reparations, a form of reparations, payments to people who were um, forcibly sterilized or sterilized without their consent. Their program ended. Virginia gave um, money to people who came forward and were sterilized in state sanctioned programs. And California is still, the, that is still going on, but that, you know, the, they're paying people, but that is, those are the only three states. There's been nothing um, national or nothing else. Um, I wanted to, you know, mention just sort of lift up the sense the kind of sensitivity training or anti-racism, um, anti-bias um, training that's happening in California. So uh, California um, did the right thing um, beginning, I think it was in 2006, re realized that the levels of maternal mortality were just as high in California as they were in the country and that black women were three to four times more likely um, to be struck by this problem. And really, um, Put it, did, pulled out all the stops and said, you know what, we're going to do everything we can to fix this problem. We, it's not right that birthing people are dying at, because of pregnancy and, you know, and during the birthing process. So put protocols in place so that if you had a hemorrhage or an emergency C-section, everybody that was at the hospital knew what to do and all the tools were in place, studied it really well. And during that time period, the, um, number of birthing people who died dropped 55%, but the, the racial health disparity, black women were still three to four times more likely to pass away. So what they did was realize, oh, we can't doctor ourselves out, out of this. So they, they mandated um, 
anti-racism, anti-bias training for anyone who works with birthing people, whether during pregnancy or during childbirth or the time after. And the state has now also um, done that, made um, that kind of training mandatory in continuing education for anyone who who's practicing. So I think that's a good step. I don't think that's the only step. It's not perfect. Um, I think that what's happening for medical with medical students and um, nursing students and midwifery students is really good that they seem they were many of them were politicized. They were in high school and college uh, during, you know, and they hit up against Black Lives Matter. They saw what was happening in this country. Now they're um, having their medical training. They're studying to be doctors, nurses, midwives, um, public pol- public health policy advocates or, you know, whatever they're doing, but they're more political than the last generation. And they're pushing back against the kind of stale training that was, is sort of, look, you know, using kind of race as a marker, which isn't really effective. And they're also saying, I don't want to be a healthcare provider the way some of the others in the past generations have. And I'm really excited by that work among students. But I also think we need to support and lift them up because it's hard going to medical school and also trying to train yourself in kind of racial health disparities and health equality while you're in medical school, which is really hard. And in many cases, you're trying to train other students. So that I think they need more support from their colleges and universities. I do want to take one more question we have in the box and to follow up on that. How has the medical establishment, I think beyond the the younger folks who kind of get it, how has the medical establishment responded to uh, findings like yours, to the research that has made up uh, the bed of knowledge here, uh, to this changing paradigm? Well, it's a mixed bag. I, I have been really excited by, you know, what's happened in the past year or two. Um, there are many other colleges and universities that now have a health equity center. And many of my friends who were doing other things are now running them. So I really like that. The AMA made an apology to black doctors, how they were treated in the past. The AMA has a health equity office officer who's a wonderful, really smart woman. There are um, uh, the CDC and other agencies and places like that have now in the past, we, the words um, racism as a public health threat weren't a thing that nobody was saying that. But now it's kind of common in, to say that. However, people are pushing back ab- against that. Certainly, I think it was the chief medical officer in the state of Virginia, like a couple of days ago, said that's not a thing. Stop saying that. And um, so there is pushback. I certainly get pushback from physicians. And I think that they mistake us talking about these issues with us calling them racist. And um, after I was on Fresh Air, I got a note from um, a a gentleman whose son is um, was a medical student in Virginia. And the son took part in that study that in 2016 with uh, students, interns, and residents that set, that found that um, something like 40% of them believed one myth about the black body, including that black people have higher pain tolerance or have thicker skin. And so he said, well, that was really unfair. It really hurt my son's feelings. It was really wrong to say that. He really felt used by that study. And now he's a doctor. So you should just stop using that study. And you, you're just trying, you're just piece of crap. Okay. Anyway, so I read that three days ago. I thought about it and I thought, oh, 
you know, should I go back and look at it? And then I'm thinking, no, you know what? That guy, he is a doctor now. His, he's forever changed because he got called out in this way. And so, no, and, and I'm sorry if his feelings were hurt too bad. And, um, but I thought about that because I thought, huh, that is important. And it's important to sort of like, I guess, listen to people say you hurt my feelings, but then move on to say, well, your feelings, <laughs> uh, this can make a huge difference if we acknowledge this stuff. Um, your individual feelings, we have to push beyond that. We have one question asking, do you think telehealth could widen or narrow these disparities and gaps? And I want to expand that. I want to know if you've come across any other innovations or new implementations of healthcare practice that seem to be going against the grain. Um, I think, well, telehealth has been certainly so important during the pandemic. And I think telehealth is really important for rural areas. Uh, you know, you've seen, we've seen so many um, medical uh, clinics and hospitals closing in rural areas, particularly in the South. So I think that, you know, there's no um, choice but to rely on that kind of technology. And so, you know, I welcome that. And I don't think that's the only answer. I think many of the things we're doing are kind of limp along plans that we're just trying to piece this together until we get a new kind of healthcare system. And um, I think the other thing that I mentioned in my book and I really, really believe in, and you know, I saw y'all's conversation before <laughs> we started and I could see that there were their birth workers, their midwives, their doulas on, you know, here. And I really thank you for your work. And what happens I think in America is we rely so much on machines and on technology and which I'm so glad we have that in our country, but often we need to make a connection to people, especially black people who have been harmed by um, our healthcare system. So I think it's important that, you know, we can look at lower tech, um, people-centered solutions. And we don't have to always look toward technology. And I was having this conversation with someone, you know, during this, you know, book extravaganza recently who said, oh, I said, I was talking about community health workers. And I said, doulas, community health workers, patient navigators. And somebody said, oh, you're just trying to spend more money. That's really expensive. I said, no, it's not. It's terrible that they're not paid that well. This is a really good way um, and it's certainly cheaper. Even if you pay the folks better and pay them what they deserve, it's still less expensive than people getting ill and having to be treated in hospitals and in hospital settings. If you keep people out of the system um, by keeping them more healthy and having a kinder, more loving connection to the system, it just works better. Now, I have one more for you, and then I will let you go. Um, I'll stop bothering you, and you can... Uh... Yeah, usually you, you bother me anytime. I am oh, so good, glad good, 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 good. I, I want you to, you know, sign my book at some point. Um, but, but I do think it would do for us uh, to really delve into, you know, we did have a lot of birth workers who were on, we had a lot of people who were, who were involved, and we know that society is built to try and, you know, around making the act of giving birth safer around protecting people, around protecting children. And what does it say about America, about this country, about our structures, if 
this event, which is so pivotal, is still so dangerous for Black Americans? Um, I think there's this, you know, I have the button and the t-shirt that says, listen to Black women. And, and I would say, listen to Black people. And I would say, listen to people. <laughs> I'd say, listen to birthing people. Um, and because it's interesting sometimes when I have sort of the most mainstream kind of people pushing back against some of these ideas, I realize they're not really listening. Because everywhere I go, people are telling me stories of what happened to them. I get, oh, is are people vaccine hesitant or afraid, black people afraid to go into the healthcare system because of Tuskegee? I was like, no, they're afraid from what happened to them in the system yesterday. I was thinking about this because for my book, I got two good, I mean, good reviews. One was in the New York Times book review. It'll be on the cover on Sunday. Oh, wow. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. And the other is in the Washington Post. And both of these reviews shared a, a near tragic birth story. One was a tragic birth story. One was a miscarriage. And um, the family was treated, the um, parents were treated so badly. They called the, um, the you know, the lost um, pregnancy a demise, which is, you know, okay, that that's not kind. And then they sent the people home to basically to have the woman bleed out. And they said, no, you'll be fine. They didn't care for her. And in the middle of a book review, this person is sharing this really terrible, sad story. Then in the New York Times um, book review was a woman who talked about her. She, she had read my 2018 maternal and infant mortality story. And she said, I was afraid. I did everything right. I had a doula. I was... Re- And then her story was tragic. She wasn't listened to. She had way too much medical intervention. And I just thought, wow, no one's, I mean, in the middle of a book review, I mean, they said the good things about the book, but the centerpiece of these two reviews were these two people's really terrible, horrific stories. And I was just really struck by that. And the other thing that I was struck by in the New York Times review the woman was reading my book at the same time the, you know, Roe versus Wade decision was leaked. And what she said was all over social media, people were saying, oh my God, it's another handmaid's tale. We're going to, and then she said, "Mm, for white women, because for black women, we have been living through a handmaid's tale. So we've been living through a situation where a J. Marion Sims, you know, does surgeries on black enslaved black women without anesthesia. Cut to the Ralph sisters in 1973, they're sterilized, then cut through today and these people sharing their stories. So I think that, um, hello, (laughs) I'm so excited. I lost my train of thought, but I want to, you know, I just want to lift up because we're, you know, in Atlanta, we're at Karis. I just want to say, I am so grateful to be informed by the black led reproductive justice movement because it, you know, I was allowed to understand in a really simple way and to, you know, to also share it, what it means what reproductive justice means in America. It's only three things. It's really easy. It's the right to have a child. It's the right not to have a child. And then it's the right, if you choose to have that child, that you have the right to, to raise that child in a safe and healthy environment. And it kind of like, I am so informed by those simple three things. 
And it helps to understand because, you know, you're looking at these arguments and not everyone believes in each thing, you know, during the arguments. It makes no sense when you're listening to some of the counter arguments. But I just stick right in that, those three things. And it helps me understand and it helps me speak about it. And it helps me kind of like not get upset. (laughs) I just stick in my good space. Well, yeah, you think about what would change in our society if you only made those three things the center of policy, right? And if you expanded them and just said it's not just for um, parents and birthing people and, you know, it's about for everyone. If we just had the right to control our bodies and not have terrible things happen to us and to be able to be um, healthy and safe no matter who we are or where we live, it's pretty simple. Now, I want to make sure to have everybody here get a chance to and be uh, see all the links so you can buy this book under the skin. And I want to invite ER back so ER can tell you exactly how to do that. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate this beautiful conversation. Um, Linda, it is always a pleasure to get to to hear you think and um, to get to be with your work. Thank you for being such a friend to Karis and to Atlanta all these many years. Um, I want folks to know you can just click this teal button at the bottom center of your screen. That's a one click right over to where you can buy under the skin directly from Karis. It really does help Karis when you buy your event books directly from us. Um, Buy it for your book club. Buy it for... It's a great, if you are a birth worker, it is a great thing to do as um, a book club with your coworkers, um, faith communities, sororities, fraternities, all the things. This is a great book to discuss among friends. Um, Also consider donating it to your local library, or if you um, are able to purchase a copy, request it from your public library. That really helps um, get the word out about it. So, um, those are all things you can do to help Linda and and help the world um, so that more people see this book. And if you want to help Kara Circle, our nonprofit, um, you can always uh, donate whatever uh, you are able to support the work of Kara Circle. That's how we do all of our programs. I know some folks may have already donated when you came in the room. So thank you for that. It really does make a huge difference. So um, Van, thank you so much for being here and, and hosting this beautiful conversation. Linda, I hope that you stay safe and well on your book tour and that it is, you know, beautiful and enlightening and connective and all of those things, um, that you bring to your work and to the world. Well, thank you. And I hope to see both of you soon. And so we can hug. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I can tell cause I'm like talking with my hands. It's, <laughs> I love this. Thank you. I appreciate both of you and all mm-hmm. of you out there. Thank you for coming on and listening. Well, thank you, and everybody, please buy a book by more than one. That's right. Take care. Be safe. Good night. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.